0: Welcome back, SGO listeners. This is our third podcast in the series on Limbatinib and Pimbro as part of Keeping Up with the Chemotherapies through the SGO Education Committee. Today, uh, we are going to be talking about the follow-up and monitoring between cycles. My name is Tracy Lynn Hall, and I'm a GYN oncologist at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Moderating along with me today is
1: Hi, this is Judith Smith. I am a professor and clinical pharmacist at McGovern Medical School and Memorial Hermann Cancer Center here in Houston, Texas,
2: working in gynecologic oncology. We have some wonderful speakers. I am Jennifer McDonald. I'm a clinical pharmacy specialist at Hollings Cancer Center in Charleston, South Carolina, and I specialize specifically in gynecologic oncology. Hi, I'm Pam Solomon. I'm a GYN oncologist
3: at MD Anderson Cancer Center, also in Houston, Texas.
0: Thank you so much, each of you, for joining us today. We'll go ahead and get started with talking about what are the most common adverse effects that we see with administration of the combination of limbatinib and pembrolizumab? Dr. Solomon? We've talked a little bit about
3: kind of preparing patients. I think when you look at the clinical trials, I think the majority of patients have some toxicity from this combination. I think the highest reported side effects were hypertension, diarrhea, and fatigue. And I think overall, I think that what's been most compelling to me treating patients is probably the fatigue part. I think we're Pretty good at monitoring toxicities that are kind of more medically easy to quantify. I think fatigue is a little bit challenging and maybe we need to ask patients a little bit more about it. I think for each of these, it's sort of your follow up visit. Just ask patients how they are, what they're feeling. And really to me, I ask them kind of the impact of the treatment and what their ability to do kind of their day to day activities. And I think that's probably the best way to assess their fatigue and whether it impacts kind of what they do on a day to day basis.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you for going over those. Whenever you do have patients calling or sending those MyChart messages, what are going to be some triggers to make them go ahead and prompt scheduling a visit to follow up versus being able to triage those side effects at home?
3: I think that's a great question. I think for us, because this was a relatively new regimen when it was FDA approved, I think not only as clinicians seeing the patients in the office and evaluating them, I think our nursing staff, the ATPs who take a lot of these sort of initial phone calls, I think we're pretty good about more objective things like hypertension. Right. So we have kind of cutoffs. If if your blood pressure is more than 140 over 90, maybe that's something we need to reassess in the clinic. I think that that, something that's a little bit tougher is some of the subjective complaints. And what I tell my team and what I tell my patients is if there's something that's bothering you and you're not sure what to do, then you should reach out. Because we want them to reach out and either we reassure them more than they don't reach out and they're kind of suffering at home or potentially would refuse to take the medication in the future. So I just constantly communicate with my team in clinic. So as they're taking the calls, we tend to err on the side of caution. And if patients are not able to do their regular activities or they're hesitant to continue the medication at home, then we try to check in with them to counsel them and, and hopefully keep them on track. Yeah,
1: Dr. Talman, that is such a good point about taking medications at home. Overall, you know, how do you approach managing patient compliance at home with these new oral medications? Dr. McDonald?
2: I think sometimes it's good to just stress, you know, how drugs work and how long they last in the system in order to help kind of keep that balance between maintaining a dose that will create tumor kill, but also not promote Uh, resistance at the same time. So trying to keep them on schedule, being willing to tell them we can dose reduce, we can do some dose interruptions and then restart at a potential dose reduction. So just really helping them feel supported. I think the more that they feel supported, the more that they feel that their toxicities are heard and that we're intervening and try to manage those the more likely they are to be compliant with their therapy obviously can keep track if you're using an internal specialty pharmacy or even calling the specialty pharmacy as well when are they filling how often are they filling right like are they staying on with that filling cycle at the specialty pharmacy or has it been two months since they filled their last limbema and how did that happen right if they were being compliant so there are some check-ins that you can do if you're fortunate enough to have a specialty pharmacy on site but if not if you're concerned I think calling the specialty pharmacy which I know can be difficult to get through sometimes but Calling them just to double check on fills can be helpful as well.
1: And are there any other special guidance or tips that you give your patients about how to handle the oral medications at home?
2: Definitely. I think there are lots of great um, handouts out there that I always give patients, whether that's Chemocare.com or HOPA. So the Hematology Oncology Pharmacy Association has some good oral handouts um, for patients. So it will give them guidance on what to do if you miss a dose, because that comes up a lot, right? Like I missed a dose, when can I take another dose, what to do with oral medications as far as handling. So washing your hands afterwards, avoiding people who are pregnant, keeping it in a, a safe place. I do, I and mean, I don't know if you, this comes up for you guys in Texas, but being in South Carolina, sometimes it's really hot. So don't pick up the medicine and leave it in your car for three hours, right? When it's 90 some degrees outside, you're going to want to keep that in an appropriate temperature controlled environment. Maybe the bathroom's not the best place to keep kind of tips like that. And then most, specialty pharmacies have some exchange program where once you're done with your dose pack, you can bring it back and they'll dispose of it for you since it's hazardous waste instead of going out in the regular trash. So just some basic things like that can be really helpful for patients and their waste isn't toxic, right? They can use the normal restroom at home. Sometimes that is a question that gets asked and just assuring them that it's safe for them to take just some appropriate precautions.
0: Thank you so much. I will be honest in my practice, I have had some patients that I've had to go through dose reductions and treatment delays. Dr. Solomon, in your practice, how do you feel that patients have tolerated this medication?
3: I think, I think overall, we're probably better at managing toxicity now than we were when we first started prescribing the combination. I think one of the big things is just setting expectations with the patients. I think the goal is ultimately to have them take the treatment long enough to know whether it's helping and just to reassure them that it's not an easy regimen. For a lot of patients, if they're having side effects at home, reach out. Don't feel like you have to wait to your next clinic visit. And if they're not doing well, we can sometimes hold medications, dose reduce, like you said, And ultimately, with sort of appropriate counseling and setting expectations, I think most patients are able to stay on medication long term. I mean, I think that's what I would say is that we're getting better at managing the toxicity as we give the drug combination more and more. And I think that setting expectations for the patients and supporting them through it can be really helpful in, in trying to keep them on.
0: We are getting better at managing these toxicities with the more experience we have with this regimen. Are there any specific parameters that you hold fast and true to for treatment delays, dose reductions, or to take off the of therapy? It sounds like we really are doing this on a case by case basis with patients. And I'll say that's what I try to do in my practice is personalize it as as possible. But do you have any strict parameters or recommendations you'd make for our audience? I think generally, we still even when patients are on a trial, try to use sort of the
3: grading of toxicities. So I think we try to follow kind of what the protocol guidelines are understanding that that's not always as straightforward as it needs to be. But I think for things like fatigue that are a little bit harder to quantify, patients either have a grade three fatigue or they're grade two, but it impacts their quality of life then we would typically do a dose hold. And then I kind of wait a week or two to see it prove. And then I have a discussion about restarting at the same dose versus a dose reduction. I think that for patients that have had toxicity, I don't know, my impression is that they feel pretty strongly about the toxicities. And some have even said, well, I'm not going to stay at the same dose because it's either affecting my quality of life, my appetite, food doesn't taste good. And I think ultimately, you know, these are with non-curable disease. So I think we have to keep that in mind too, not only quantity of life, but quality of life. And so I think we kind of have that discussion with patients and try to make modifications where we can. So hopefully they can get the benefit of the treatment. Talking about dose reductions and even taking patients off of therapy,
1: are there any programs available for, I know our patients get frustrated as we're dose adjusting and having medication left over and that hasn't even been opened yet and they feel like they're being wasteful. So is there any options for that financial toxicity? I think most of us were at SGO last year and this was really brought up. We had mentioned in an earlier podcast the starting dose of the 20 milligrams and for two-thirds of patients can't tolerate the 20 milligrams daily and maybe going under multiple dose reductions until they find the dose that they can tolerate.
2: SOSI has come out with a kind of take-back program for patients so there is a program that you can return kind of recently filled prescriptions to get the dose exchange.
1: So let's just close out for this series of some, your take-home message for the crowd. Let's start with Dr. Solomon. What would be your take-home message from the Lumbatinib-Pembro combination?
3: I think with experience as a provider, I think we better understand kind of the toxicity profile and how to manage patients. I think the combination is a great option and has a very high response rate compared to other second-line therapies for recruitment endometrial cancer. So I think even when patients don't feel well, kind of make adjustments, help support them through any toxicity that they're having so that ultimately they can stay on the drug and hopefully see benefit. And I think just be proactive, setting patients' expectations, help them to understand that a lot of patients need a dose reduction. But with a dose reduction, a majority of patients um, can stay on the medications
2: and and hopefully have benefits.
1: Thank you, Dr. Solomon. Jennifer, do you have any comments and take home for the audience?
2: No, I think just making sure patients have a good way to contact you for when or if they're having issues so you can intervene and help keep them on therapy.
1: Thank you all for joining our Keeping Up With the Chemo podcast series on lumbatinib and pembrolizumab. We encourage you to join us again for our next Keeping Up With the Chemo series on Mertuximab in the management of recurrent ovarian cancer. Thank you again to our panel of speakers this evening, and we encourage you all to join us again. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO On the Go podcasts, please email us directly
3: at education at sgo.org.